0: Nothing is more powerful than the connection between a storyteller and their audience. Over 100 million Americans listen to podcasts every month, forming lasting connections with their favorite creators. And 56% of those listeners have purchased a product after hearing about it on a podcast. But there's an art to building meaningful relationships between consumers, hosts, and brands. Ad Results Media has it down to a science. Ad Results Media specializes in helping breakthrough brands join the conversation at scale. With over 20 years of expertise, Ad Results Media amplifies brand stories across thousands of shows, publishers, and emerging platforms. They're a data driven matchmaker, strategically pairing world changing brands with engaged audiences to create the sound of success. For an experienced partner to help your brand find the right audience, achieve long term growth, and improve advertising ROI, look no further be part of the story. Learn more at adresultsmedia.com slash story. That's com slash story.
2: This is Mike Francesa. Join me each week on the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bent Rivers Network. This is real sports talk for the podcast generation. Subscribe to the free Mike Francis podcast today from wherever you get
3: your podcasts. Don't even think about betting this football season until you check out the Sportsbetters Paradise podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. The top college and pro football handicappers help you along all season long. Subscribe to Sportsbetters Paradise wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Today, Nate welcomes Cuban music historian Ned Sublette to discuss his essay, The Kingsman and the Cha Cha Cha, which connects the dots between the 1950s Mambo explosion in New York and the three chord classics that dominated 60s rock. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Ned Sublette, author of Cuba and its music. And today we're going to be talking about a speech he gave at the Experience Music Project book, The Kingsman and the Cha-Cha-Cha. The book is it's collected in Listen Again, A Momentary History of Pop Music. Ned, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. And I've been pretty intimidated about having you on because I discovered your work in the last couple of years, and it is so immense and so important. You are probably the most, the scholar in English of Cuban music, and also your books on New Orleans connect that to the mainland, and it's massively important to what we're doing here on this show, which is a sort of a history of popular music from the beginning. And Anyway, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. I tried to focus on one of your shorter works, but one that's of very particular interest to the rock audience, and that's the connection between the Kingsman's Louie Louie and the cha-cha-cha. Not something a lot of people think of, but it's an obvious and clear connection. Can you extrapolate on how they're linked?
2: Sure, once you hear it, you hear it. And it's not just a case of sound alike. There's a smoking gun, we know. We can show this. Uh, my informal recipe for rock and roll, and by rock and roll, I mean I was born in 1951, so I remember rock and roll, the music that preceded rock. Uh, rock and roll was boogie-woogie meets cha-cha-cha in many ways. Now, musical ideas that came in from Cuba entered the pop repertoire in generation after generation, from certainly from the 19th century forward, uh, if not earlier. But in particular, uh, there were a bunch of signposts in the 20th century. 1931, the peanut vendor transforms pop music globally. Uh, Chano Poso coming in with Dizzy Gillespie in 1948. Uh, Trans47 Transposes the uh, Transforms jazz Um, Now as this Music called rock and roll Was getting started and As the music that preceded it Rhythm and blues uh, Was thriving uh, The influence Of Cuban rhythm was Everywhere and not just rhythm But uh, in Particular there are Different United States music and Afro Cuban music are very different musical systems. Okay, and Louie Louie is comes from the cha 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 side, the Cuban side. And but how did it get there? Um, there was a song called the El Loco cha-cha in english but that was his title cubans never say cha-cha they say cha-cha-cha but uh the song was written by the cuban composer rosendo ruiz jr under the name Amaren el loco which means tie up the crazy man and uh like put a straight jacket on him <laughs> and the uh Rosendo Ruiz was the author of one of the biggest songs of the cha-cha-cha boom, Basilon, que rico Basilon, cha-cha-cha, que rico, cha-cha-cha, uh, which is still played today. And for René Trusset, the number one Cuban bandleader in L.A., to have a new song by Rosendo Ruiz in his repertoire was a big deal. And the L.A., the the... El Loco Chacha turned out, as it was renamed, turned out to be really locally popular and started to be covered. In particular, it started to be covered by a band in L.A. called Ricky Rallera and his Rhythm Rockers. Ricky Rallera and his brother were two Filipino-American brothers who had a band that played, and their audience... um, was largely mexican teenagers who at the time wanted to dance cha-cha-cha and they for el loco cha-cha was a number in their repertoire that uh one of the great advantages of this song form is that it can be just repeated and repeated and repeated right when you have a a song, you know, the, in the Anglo-American style with, you know, verses, choruses. You get to the end of the song, you kind of have to repeat the verses over and over if you want to stretch the song out. With this kind of tune, you just extend the tumbao or groove, right? And the song, the El Loco Cha Cha, has really very little to do with it. That is to say the melody of the song irrelevant to our purposes, but the tumbao, the groove, the René Trosette arranged for that song, was that fabulous lick that you could just play over and over and over as long as the people wanted to dance. So there, the Ricky Rolera and the Rhythm Rockers had a lead singer named Richard Berry, an African American born in Excelsior Louisiana who grew up in Compton in South Central LA and who uh, was who made music history several times but one of the times he made music history was writing rewriting the A Loco Cha Cha as Louie Louie. Okay. Now this song in Dave Marsh's book Louie uh, Louie is an it gives a full accounting of the peregrinations of this song as it went through what at the time was called the folk process right it traveled orally from band to band basically up the west coast got to the pacific northwest paul revere and the raiders covered it and um guy named Ron Holden, uh, who uh, had a hit called Love You So, uh, did a version of it. And the Kingsman, not exactly the number one band in Portland, uh, went into not exactly the number one recording studio in Portland. And in one take, recorded the immortal Louie Louie, which is built around that Lick as they rephrased it. Tung, tung, tung. tung tung More staccato, right? Yeah. Uh, let's hear. Let's, let's
1: go ahead and hear. I want the audience to hear. Really I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming
2: you're. I'm assuming you're putting in music cuts everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, I named let's, these let's, tunes.
1: Let, let's add the El Loco Cha Cha right here.
2: Once the trumpets come in, in, you don't really have to have the rest of the song, because it's all about that opening tumbao.
1: And and that's something that he added. That wasn't something that Ruiz Jr. put in the composition.
2: No, that was not originally part of the composition. It appears that the arrangement was done by Rene Trocet himself, though I've never been able to confirm that.
1: And so so that's a key, key part. And the Kingsmen take this and run with it. And boy, do they. Mm-hmm.
2: After it tra- travels through Richard Berry and a number of other bands, it winds up uh, being recorded by the Kingsman. And by 1964 is this. Major hit uh, in this, at the beginning of this great wave of punky independent rock records that come out of uh, the garages of America and onto the radio. Now, um, if you, you know, there's a lot of other songs that use this particular three chord loop over and over and over. It was, of course, a trope in Cuban music for uh, already a very, very long time. You can find any number of songs that just loop two bars of uh, alternating chords. Uh, This is not at all what African-American music was doing. African-American music was playing chord changes, right? And even if they played the blues, uh, they were playing three chords but they were playing three chords dealt out in a progression over 12 bars. Uh, Afro-Cuban music was just loop a tumbao and keep it rolling. The classic example of this is that first big hit, the Peanut Bender of 1931, which begins with just these opening two chords and the song never changes after that I mean there's not a bridge there's not a verse there's not a chorus really there's, I mean there's a verse and a chorus structure but the chords don't change, there's no rhythmic change up, it's which has the great virtue of being indefinitely extendable on live on the bandstand and on the dance floor
1: and this this three chord pattern really comes into rock and roll with la bamba or at least you hear phil Spector and others burt burns and other people that are going to be using this chord structure over and over again calling it the la bamba millions of examples millions of examples
2: and La Bamba is an important other uh, piece of evidence in this. If you listen to the Richie Valens record, okay? Now, La Bamba is a son jarocho from the Veracruz region of Mexico, the Gulf Coast region of Mexico that was in contact with Havana for, you know, since the 16th century. But... Um, by the, and, and it has a whole history in Mexico. It was associated with a uh, political campaign president, Miguel Alemán from, uh, from Veracruz. Uh, but in by the time it gets to L.A. in the 1950s, and the barely capable, musically capable teenager Richie Valens is recording it. Uh, He's like the Ricky Roller and the Rhythm Rockers playing for Mexican teenagers who want to dance cha-cha-cha. So if you listen to the famous recording of La Bamba, on which the drummer is the proto-rock-and-roll drummer, New Orleanian Earl Palmer, you will hear that all the way through there is, sounds like an overdub to me, uh, which was unusual at the time because they didn't have multi-track recording yet. The- one, two, cha-cha-cha, going all the way through the record, invariably, never stops. Now, Cuban bands didn't play one, two, cha-cha-cha, one, two, cha because the Cubans knew how to find, and usually the Cubans did one, two, three, cha-cha-cha, two, three. But um, instead of one, two, cha-cha-cha, but the same principle, same, it just depends on where you start one with your feet, really. And this rhythm... Uh, is invariant through the Richie Valens La Bamba. Okay, La Bamba is still going up the charts when Richie Valens dies in February 1959, five weeks after Fidel rolls into Cuba, okay, rolls into Havana. And uh, this song becomes posthumously a big hit and continues to reverberate. Over the decades, all right. Fast forward to 1965, and the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Uh, well, what is the rhythm of that? Hey, hey, hey. One two that rhythm goes all the way through. I can't get no satisfaction. It's what makes the tune snaps. And the, uh, the that rhythm seems to be carried on the tambourine, which was played on that session actually by producer Jack Nietzsche. Um, but again, this is straight up cha-cha-cha rhythm. This is not blues. Uh, this is not something that comes out of African-American music, and this is an easy point of confusion because the Stones made such a big deal out of copying the Chicago blues guys that it's easy to forget that the Chicago blues guys were also playing a flavor of Roomba Boogie or Roomba Blues a lot of the time. And this turns up in the Stones, too. And in fact, most of the Stones' big hits in the 60s are not in that African-American shuffle time, but in straight-up, straight-apes, Cuban time, okay? Uh, the classic example, Let's Spend the Night Together, in which, you know, Mick Jagger is playing maracas in the Jerome Green style, uh, And actually, but playing maracas, not a Delta Blues instrument, right? And still uh, manages to even actually get the words cha-cha-cha in that song at one point.
1: And let's go ahead and hear that drum break from Satisfaction. This is the Rolling Stones, 1965. I can't get no Satisfaction. The Stones doing Satisfaction in 1965, again just beating you over the head with the cha cha cha, but we're doing that to make a point. And the Stones probably weren't aware of what they were doing. the The mambo thing had been an enormous fad in America in the 40s and 50s. There's a whole generation of rock and roll songwriters in the Brill Building who grew up going to those dances, people like Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann and Burt Burns, uh, Gary Goff and others are out there dancing the mambo every night and coming back to the studio and re- writing and recording in a rock and roll medium. And, and you also talk about Tutti Frutti. You know, Earl Palmer, who played the drums on the "Bomba," also played the drums on Little Richard's breakthrough song. And he plays straight eights. He goes back and forth between the shuffle and straight eights. And there was a quote you had That I thought just really blew my mind. From the beginning, rock and roll was negotiation between African-American shuffle time and Cuban, Afro-Cuban straight eights. Discuss Mm -hmm. that a little bit.
2: Oh, sure. Uh, But first, let me go back. I, I would not be so sure that the Stones didn't know. Uh, what they were yeah, Brian doing Jones on that probably uh, did for sure well i mean you know i would like to you know they're still alive i would like to ask keith or charlie watts you know if i ever got a, if i could ask him one question it would be that um and it well, was they- those cuban style elements that entered into their uh their records over and over again including now sympathy for the devil uh which opens with Sort of com is playing a sort of uh, Cuban beat, Keith at one point called it a samba, which it's not um, but you know Cuban music was heard in in uh, the fifties in england they were the Cuban, the British musicians were aware of it as well as of as of the Delta blues and the, and the Chicago blues. So I, I'm not, sure. for me, the, the, the jury's still out on whether the stone, what, how conscious the stones were of what they were resorting to for their rhythmic bag of tricks. What's clear is that the teenage dancing audience did not know. And the teenagers who were dancing to satisfaction were not dancing cha, cha, cha anymore, but nonetheless, uh, that's what that rhythm was, so uh but you wanted to talk about
1: um the uh remind me <laughs> the 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 that you say from the beginning rock and roll is a negotiation between shuffle time right. and straight eights between shuffle time and straight eight okay. and, and afro Cuban music
2: thank you yeah shuffle time um swing time, uneven eighth notes is well you know you look at um if you're a ninth grade high school jazz band you know and you see that the chart says double 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 you know immediately that even you know in the ninth grade that you don't play that you play doba and that's called swinging right and that can't really that isn't really written down it's understood that you play in swing time well swing time doesn't really happen in cuba I argue that this is a really profound cleavage between african American and afro Cuban music that dates that derives all the way back to the African roots of the two different cultures. The senegambian uh, captives who were brought to North America were foundational populations in the three great wellsprings of african American musical culture, which is to say the Chesapeake, Charleston and the Low Country, and to a lesser but significant extent, in terms of numbers of people, the uh, Gulf Coast and New Orleans. Um, and all three of these places, you heard Senegambia. The music of Senegambia is quite different from the music of the Yoruba or the Congo, which had such a heavy influence in Cuba. And It's griotic. it's less it's the texture is less complicated, it's less polyrhythmic, and it has more of that loping kind of swing. Um I can um I can provide you an example to play uh of a chora player if you listen to a Senega- Senegalese chora player if you listen to it sorry that's off of me. if you listen to a Senegalese chora player uh you will hear that uh that that kind of swinging feel—it's not exactly swing, but it's it's close enough that you can tell that there's there is a connection, and this just really doesn't exist in Cuba. Cuba instead is straight eights locked together in a polyrhythm, in which many different uh, instruments may be playing different rhythms, but they all stack up to sound like one thing. And that's where the clave comes in. You've heard about the clave. The clave is a rhythmic key. Uh, Some people think of it as a rhythm, um, most simply expressed as da, 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 da. Uh, well, how many records, how many pop records have we heard with that? Uh, there's also a slightly more syncopated version that's used in the rumbo, which is And you can make a beat out of this. You can play it, have a whole band, you know, slam it out as a rhythm. But that's not how the Cubans use it. And in Cuba, you may not actually even have anyone playing that rhythm explicitly but everyone knows it's there the clave is a way to orient your rhythm so that everybody is playing in a single Tumbao, a single groove together so for example you may have one musician who's playing you know the cow the the campana i don't like to call it cowbell the campana which is a word that means church bell in spanish uh might be playing and that is equivalent to playing um, if the timbalero on the bell goes that is equivalent to saying pop, 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 pop. And any Musician in a Cuban band will know that immediately. And if you got it backwards, if you played, if you got your clave cross, as they said, uh, the world would stop, the dancers would freeze, and you'd be fired from the band immediately. So uh, everybody, and the great thing about this is it allows any number of people to join in, each playing their own polyrhythm. Uh, along with this comes a different way of singing. Okay, Cuban music tends to be syllabic. I mean, there are, uh, there are some ornaments and there are some melismas. We'll talk about melisma in a second. But basically, Cuban music is one note to a syllable, and it's got to lock in with the clave. So, for example, in the peanut vendor, one note to a syllable, right? Not that we don't do that in uh, U.S. music, but what we do a lot in U.S. music is uh, melisma. Blues singers, uh, it was famously said, could you know stretch a single syllable out to a whole line, or cram as many syllables into a line as they wanted. It was entirely variable. Uh, the rhythm was much freer, and they could they would sing melisma, which is to say. Uh, Multiple notes on a single vowel. Uh, uh, Those sliding blues notes. Uh, Again, Cuba doesn't really use the blues scale. Um, um, When you hear it, it's often a borrowing that's come in from uh, North America. But so you have you have this very you have this much more ornate style of singing, which is also similar to the Arabized music of the Senegambia that really dominates African American vocal style and in Cuba you really don't have that so you have a a different style of singing and you have a different concept of how to stack a rhythm so these are two really different musical systems now the great thing I I like to emphasize how different African American and Afro-Cuban music are but I also want to emphasize that they do have a lot in common and they can hide in all kinds of fantastic ways. And in particular, the late 40s and early 50s was a great time of experimentation for that. And well, you hear that, that experimentation continuing into the present day. But uh, it, to go back to little Richard, um, you know, Little Richard was, uh, really a pure product of one of the most Africanized areas of the United States, Georgia. Uh, I think people don't give Georgia enough props, uh, but suffice it to say that the, uh, the three singers most associated with bringing the gospel scream and the pop music, you know, Little Richard, James Brown, and Ray Charles, all born in Georgia. Um, there's, you know, Georgia, which, uh, Took in far more Africans than any place else in the United States, um, in the Charleston and Low Country area, uh, and Little Richard came first playing playing shuffles, but also playing straight time. So in uh, "Tutti Fruity," for example, well, um, "Tutti Fruity," uh, Little Richard is is singing straight eights and earl palmer's playing a shuffle Uh, and that is sometimes called a half and half groove you hear that a lot you hear chuck berry do that a lot uh where there's both straight time and uh swing time going on at the same time but then little richard comes in with lucille where he's just banging straight eighth notes almost like you know which in a way that would later become the whole rhythmic idea of punk and new wave da 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 da. And as Earl Palmer said, you couldn't very well go against that, so rich Earl Palmer came up with a straight eights backbeat to play behind it. Earl Palmer probably created more basic beats of rock and roll than any other drummer. And, you know, he did it. He started with Fat, starting with Fat Domino in 1949 with the Fat Man, uh, which was this uh, locked triplet uh, shuffle. Then coming in with Little Richard, with Tutti Frutti, uh, with Lucille, and then with Richie Valens, with La Bamba, and also the classic garage beat, Come On, Let's Go. But
1: anyway, I digress. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor. Back to you, you, Nathan. (laughs) Let's take a quick sponsor break, and then I've got more questions for you when we get back. So, Ned, we've talked a lot about Cuba and we've talked a lot about America. We've talked a little bit about the differences in the enslaved populations of both of those areas. But one city that's come up, we haven't really explained why it's so important, is New Orleans. What is the connection between New Orleans and Havana and New Orleans and the rest of the United States? musically?
2: Whoa, that is a fascinating question. Uh, we'll probably be, you know, musicologists will be trying to answer that one for, you know, well into the 23rd century. Uh, You've got New 15 Orleans, minutes, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, suffice it to say that uh, New Orleans is a liminal zone, that is to say a, a, uh, a border a border crossing, if you will. Uh, people like to say that New Orleans is the northernmost town of the Caribbean, and that sounds good, but problem with it is it's not true, um, because New Orleans isn't on the Caribbean. Look at a map. New Orleans is on the Gulf of Mexico, and I argue that Gulf culture is its own thing. Certainly, there is a Caribbean penetration into New Orleans that can't be denied, and in particular a very strong moment in 1809 and 10 when a vast uh, migration comes in from eastern Cuba, about 10,000 people of uh, people who had fled the Haitian revolution and their uh, enslaved servants and uh, laborers. So this you know what we would from San originally bringing from Saint Domingue, who had fled to Saint Domingue, the future Haiti, who had fled to Eastern Cuba, who then uh, traveled on to New Orleans after uh, Napoleon invaded uh, Spain, and the in, anybody who was. Uh, French in quotes in Cuba was suspect. They uh, so a bunch of them fled to New Orleans. That was an important cultural moment, but also, but it wasn't it wasn't a continuing circuit. It was a one shot uh, infusion that transformed New Orleans for sure, and uh, for the next couple of generations, strongly determined the uh, a lot of the cultural characteristics of the town, but. Also important was this flow back and forth between New Orleans and Havana. Havana is two hundred years older than New Orleans. Remember that at the time of the American uh, Independence Movement in the 1770s, um, Havana was way larger town than any city in the uh, so-called. Uh, not yet called united states uh way bigger than new york philadelphia um boston and you know new york started to catch up with as far as i can tell somewhere around 1810 um and you know Havana was a great city when new york was a village havana was um was the was the really the, the big sister of New Orleans. Uh, when New Orleans starts to take on the characteristics of the city in the late 18th century, uh, it's under Spanish rule. The Spani- Louisiana was a Spanish colony for the last third of the 18th century, that critical period of the French, uh, of the American, French, and Haitian revolutions, right? And New Orleans was, at that time, uh, the... The governor of Louisiana was reporting to the captain general in in Havana. New Orleans was an administrative department of Cuba at that time, and a lot of musicians from Cuba, black musicians who played in the military uh, bands, were would come in. Uh, there were a lot of so there was a lot of musical back and forth between New Orleans and Havana that went on from the late 18th century up until the embargo of cuba was declared by president john kennedy and i have always argued that the embargo of cuba is also an embargo of new orleans it cut new orleans off from its most important commercial partner uh it cu- and uh, it's no accident that its regional competitor miami has fought to keep the embargo uh the New Orleans connection with uh, Cuba is so strong and it's been in recent years, there've been really important movements to rebuild that connection. Uh, I'd like to point to a uh, preservation halls trip to Cuba chronicled in the movie A tuba to Cuba. And there's a really great number on their album. So it is called uh 100 fires that, uh, I think does a marvelous job of hybridizing uh New Orleans with Cuba uh rhythmically the but there are many other uh many other points of contact, and really until in the prior to the Trump sanctions that shut things down in the pandemic, New Orleans was becoming a major uh, showplace for Cuban music in the modern day, as well as for Haitian music. I think New Orleans is really uh, retaking a consciousness right now of its historical musical connections to Cuba and also to Saint-Domingue-slash-Haiti. So that's one thing that's going on. Uh, meanwhile, New Orleans is, uh like I said, it's not the northernmost town of the Caribbean. It's the northernmost town of the Catholic world. At the time that the United States annexes Louisiana on December 20th, 1803, there was not one catholic church in boston um uh, catholics had been uh viciously persecuted in the colonies especially in virginia um the uh, prior to american independence and there was not one protestant church in new orleans okay as the uh Anglo-Americans filtered in, coming down to make money, they tended to settle uh, on the other side of Canal Street from the so-called French Quarter, uh, that is to say, there was a real strong dividing line. You will often see uh, people say that uh, can, uh, tour you know tour guides say that Canal Street is the widest street in the United States. Well, that's because it wasn't a street; it was a neutral ground. It was a no man's land. It was this sort of like fetid barrier of you know mud and sewage that divided the. French and Spanish-speaking part of New Orleans from the English-speaking part of New Orleans. And in doing so, also divided the Catholic part of New Orleans from the Protestant part of New Orleans. So what New Orleans really is, is the... The Northernmost town, where everything shuts down for carnival on Mardi Gras Day, uh, something it has in common with a number of cities south of New Orleans. Uh, it's a town that has uh, that has benefited I would argue culturally from the interpenetration of these two uh, broad cultural segments of the hemisphere I mean you have North America Protestant and Latin America Catholic, and New Orleans is where they banged up against each other in all kinds of ways. That I think the importance of that cannot be overstated. It's not just it's not just about what church do you go to. It's also about all kinds of things, including the way that Black religion was incorporated or demonized into uh, religious practice. I mean Marie Laveau, uh, the Famous Vodou Queen of New Orleans went to mass every day, right? Um, And Congo Square, the famous uh, place, the commons where African enslaved Africans and free people of color could play. music, dance, ancestral dances, play ancestral drums um, in public when no other situation like that existed anywhere in the United States. Uh, this was opposite the French Quarter, right? This was not in the Anglo-American part of town. This was in the Catholic part of town. And this is congruent with the way that the... African religions were incorporated into Catholic life in Cuba, in Haiti, and in other places. Um, anyway, those are those are a few thoughts about that subject.
1: Cool. And let's hear another song snippet. This is one we've talked about earlier. This is the Peanut Vendor, El Manisero, from Antonio Manchin with Don Azapau's Havana Casino Orchestra. And forgive my pop pronunciation. And that was El Manisero, or the Peanut Vendor, by Antonio Manchin, with Don Azapauz Havana Casino Orchestra, and that's a song that had an immense impact on American pop culture, and is the reason basically every movie made in the early sound period has a Latin dance number. And this tradition goes all the way into the '60s with like My Fair Lady. When they do a dance number in My Fair Lady, it's a Latin influence number. So there's this. Touring. I could have danced all night. Exactly. <laughs> yep. so there's there's this torrent of pop culture latinisms many of which are coming directly or indirectly from Cuba all through the 30s, 40s, 50s and then boom there's a hard stop in the 60s just in the period we're talking about like you said when Richard Berry cuts Louie Louie cha cha is in the air there are numerous cha cha hits both you know people like Tommy Dorsey doing T for Two cha cha but as well as latin artists getting on american radio and then African American artists like Sam Cooke and Richard Berry doing cha chas of their own. But by the early 60s, even though this music is embedding itself even more deeply into rock and roll as it becomes rock music, and you could argue that this influence becoming dominant is one of the key transition points. You know, you, we were talking about the Stones earlier, and I know that. I've never read them talking about Cuban music as an influence, but they definitely knew when they switched Chuck Berry songs from shuffles to straight eights, that they were onto something. And, you know, there's Ian Sutcliffe and Brian Jones talking about that. And that was one of the things they thought, you know, they were really onto something when they started doing the straight eights. And that was perfect for white boy bands who couldn't swing to save their lives.
2: That's right. That's exactly right. Something very significant happens in the changeover from rock and roll to rock okay in the 50s in rock and roll there were a lot of shuffles elvis did a lot of shuffles buddy holly did show that'll be the day you... right by the m- mid 60s this disappears and i really think it has to do with the uh, the fact that British bands are now having hits and they are using their own band members very often rather, uh, rather than, you know, studio pros. I mean, when, uh, you know, Bob Keen and Delphi wanted to make a record of La Bamba, wanted to make a record with Richie Valance, he called in Earl Palmer to play the drums, but the, uh, in the in the British records, generally it was the English guys playing the drums themselves, the the actual band members. And as you said, those white boys couldn't swing. Uh, it's the shuffle's quite simple, but it's deceptively simple. It's hard to find somebody who can play a, a drum who can play a good shuffle. Um, the and they disappeared from rock. You don't find shuffles in sixties rock hardly at all. I can think of two big hits from the mid 60s that are shuffles uh the beach boys helped me ronda uh the drummer on that though is a real drummer one of the top pros hal blaine who certainly knew how to play a shuffle and eight days a week by the beatles where ringo's shuffle is i would say kind of clunky but uh it's That certainly didn't stop it from being, you know, an immortal record. Uh, The one place that shuffles remained uh, big time was in country music. And country uh, recordings, of course, were very tightly controlled and the drummers in the road bands didn't play on the records. They had these super professional musicians on playing on every recording. And those guys could play a shuffle and shuffles remained, uh, you know, the shuffles having come from, you know, Count Basie through Western swing into country music uh, continued to be a, a key part of the rhythm of country music well into the sixties and beyond.
1: Absolutely. Ray Price, is, Ray Price in particular was credited with, with bringing the shuffle into country. And that was an angle I hadn't really thought about until I read the talk you gave here. And I, I just love that stuff when the threads interweave and they jump from one genre to to another. You know, one genre abandons its legacy and picks up a different legacy. Meanwhile, a competing genre keeps the shuffle alive. Um, just totally fun and fascinating. And one thing I want to talk about get you to talk about a little is – one of the key differences, you mentioned that New Orleans was one of the only cities in the U.S. where African Americans could play drums. Now It was the only place. Yeah, the only place. And this was because there had been slave revolutions in South Carolina that had where they had used talking drums to communicate with each other. The slavers got freaked out and banned it. But Spain had a similar ban, and they banned people from Islamized regions, which is why people from the Savannah region's of of Africa with with the melismatic music, with the string instruments, the banjo the four bears of the banjo and the fiddles and the the kind of music that would dominate African American music in the 19th century. They banned that too. Why did the Spanish ban why were they so worried about Islam and and people who had been Islamicized? Ah, uh,
2: well I, I mean I would argue these are two really different kinds of processes. The uh, the British slave owners, I mean, even before there was plantation agriculture big time in the United States in the in the north in the main sorry, in the North American colonies, uh in the I mean Barbados, uh Drums were being prohibited already because drums were uh, fundamental to slave rebellion and because they were ways of speaking, of calling over to the next plantation. Uh, but the Isla- the prohibition against uh, Islamized Africans in- from Spain goes back to the 1520s, the early days, really before the major uh, slave, uh, movements of slave ships even in the 16th century has has been happening when it's still almost a pilot project uh king the king of spain says you take much care that in the house of trade they not enter moors or slaves raised with moors though they be of the race of guinea black people uh i I'm quoting more or less from memory here. It's not the exact wording, but that's close enough. And of course, Spain had the... Catholic monarchs of Spain had spent eight centuries driving Islam out of Iberia, which was only consolidated in 1492 when Ferdinand and Isabel rode into Granada dressed in Islamic style uh, costume as they m- marched in to take possession of the last holdout of the Islamic rulers, Granada uh 1492 now 1492 is of course you know what else happened in 1492 well several things happened the jews were uh expelled from spain that was the beginning of the uh of 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 the of the, Inquis- the inquisition was already underway but that was when it reached the the uh the peak of the expulsion of the Jews that transformed music in Italy, where many of the Jews went to, uh, and other places. And it was also uh, one year after the king of Congo, the Mani Congo, uh, Jinga and Kuu accepted baptism from the first uh, missionaries to go south of the equator and not at Swords Point, but enthusiastically converted to Catholicism and became He Jual Primero, King the First. and um, formed, sent they sent an ambassador to the Vatican. The Congo was Catholicized in 1491 before columbus right before the middle passage so that i mean they continued practicing their traditional religion which you can see today in cuba where it's called palo monte but this traditional rhythm had uh, rhythm this traditional religion had adopted a number of uh catholic symbols images um the the cross the congo's already had a cross it was a midpoint cross not a chest high crucifix cross uh but they the crucifix fit very well with the congo uh dikinga uh as it was called Uh, there so you've got catholicism in africa that's already in the syncretization the mixing of african and religion with uh with Christianity is already happening before the middle passage and travel to all parts of the new world, wiring the new world in a Congo Catholic way. That's an important thing to know. Meanwhile, Spain is prohibiting Senegambians. Okay. Later when, um, flat, you know, fast forward a couple of centuries uh, to colonial North America, uh, when slave trade is uh, getting going. Eighteenth uh, century was the peak of the slave trade from Africa to North America, and uh, Congo. Uh, well, first of all, enslaved Congos were were held in suspicion as being fifth columnists, precisely because they were Catholicized, but also, uh, Congo was a long way from Virginia. It was a long voyage, you know, uh, across the equator. And, um, the, uh, the the uh, human cargo would often arrive sick or you know very wasted, and as one slave trader uh, in Chestertown, Maryland uh, wrote in a letter, uh, Gambia is the best uh, because the uh, the uh, people tended to arrive uh, more people tended to arrive alive because it was a shorter trip, because it's from much farther north, right? So there was a geographical uh, imperative. But it is a curious symmetry that uh, there's a strong Islamic influence in the music that became the fundamental root musics of African American music, whereas this is almost entirely absent from Afro-Cuban music. Meanwhile, the white people of Cuba, that is those from Spain, had a very heavily Islamicized culture. If you hear melisma in Cuban music, it likely comes from, you know, in the, in the, in the whitest of the traditions, um, the old Spanish traditions, whereas the white people in North America had almost no contact with Islam except fighting them in uh, European wars, perhaps.
1: And that's a fascinating thing, because so often when North Americans refer to Latin influences, sometimes they're talking about that Spanish influence, and sometimes they're talking about the Afro-Cuban influence, which are two very distinctive things, but it it all gets blended in this music and in this cultural conversation. So our guest today has been Ned Sublett. We've been focused on the talk he gave that's included in the book called Listen Again, A Momentary History of Pop Music. And the the conversation, the talk is called The Kingsman and the Cha-Cha-Cha, but also the author of Cuba and Its Music and The World That Made New Orleans. I'd love to have you back anytime to talk about either of those books.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I love talking about my
1: books. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll do it. Thanks so much, Ned. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Nathan. It's been fun.
4: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This is the final episode of Let It Roll's 11th season. Next week, Nate will return with Eugene S. Robinson and Alexi Old to continue their discussion of hip-hop evolution. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. This and Again, A Momentary History of Pop Music, is published by Duke University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.
2: visit the bedfred sportsbook at i270 and md85 in frederick right next to long shots off track betting go to bedfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise must be 21 or older play responsibly for help call 1-800-GAMBLER
0: it's winter time when temperatures go down the likelihood goes up that your furnace and other appliances go down with them so don't risk a costly replacement Stay comfortable with coverage on the appliances you depend on most with the Service Guard Appliance Repair Program from Black Hills Energy. It's peace of mind in a plan. Visit blackhillsenergy.com slash sign up to learn more.
3: It's NFL Draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.